And Father, the only reason that we can say that with joy in our hearts is because of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who said that in me you have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good courage. I have overcome the world. And our claim is that we stand, even in our weakness, even in our trials, in anything that life can throw at us, we stand in our Lord Jesus Christ. And in that sense, forever, for all eternity, it will be well with our souls. We just thank you now for this time we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is kind of a special time of the year and a way to be talking about discipleship. Here we are talking, we're looking forward to the celebrating the birth of our Lord, and in reading a one-year Bible, we're closing in on Revelation. And it's just neat to be able to do that. See how God is going to bring everything together and make sense out of, out of this entire world, wipe away every tear, and it's also very exciting. There's a lot of action in the book of Revelation, and at the same time we'll be reading um, Zechariah, which is sort of like getting Revelation in stereo, and it's, it's a lot of fun. And then you walk right in, again, remembering how the Lord rescued us. Um, so I'm going to, in that sense, since I am talking about um, discipleship, I'm going to make a little bit of a commercial here, and just say that, you know, a lot of people, if they're thinking about, like, reading, uh, if you would be thinking about reading a one-year Bible, January seems like that good time. So, think about that. If you have been considering it, toying with the idea, if the Lord has been pulling on your heart a little bit, give in. Um, now, we have one-year Bibles in back. Now, this one here, I got a uh, New American Standard. This looks like it's been in the back of a pickup truck for about a year. Inside, it is totally pristine. I mean, it, it seems like some of these pages have never seen the light of day. Uh, this thing here, I got it on the web. This costs $7.25. You will not find a better Christmas gift for that person you love. And then there are the reading notes. Now, the reading notes are a uh, disciple's commentary in the Bible, kind of meant to kind of walk you through, keep you motivated. It's hard to read through the Bible. Now, if you're with a group, that gives you a lot more motivation. But just trying to understand some things, like uh, uh, today we started Joel. Where does Joel fit into the Bible? And how did, Actually, Joel's a pretty cool book if you read it. Well, I'm just going to encourage you. Now, the thing about the reading notes and why these make great gifts is they're free. And um, if you collect all 12, you can have the whole set. And, you know, so whatever. <laughs> Some people are collectors. Now, I will say this, too. This is a great time to start reading the one-year Bible because today is the first day in Revelation. Today was also in Joel. And it just it gets cooking toward the end of the year. It's pretty exciting, I think. So the message is, obviously, about discipleship. And I, I would just say this in prefacing what I'll be saying here, is that there is no neutrality in life. Um. Either we're being affected positively for the Lord or we are being influenced from the other side. That's just the way life is. If you don't use muscles, they atrophy. I don't like that either, especially at my age. But the point is, if, you don't, if you're not growing toward the Lord, just trust me, sitting there does not take us where we want to go. 
because of the way we're made up and because of the way the Lord has saved us, we need to constantly be growing in Him. Sitting at His feet. I mean, that's the most basic thing a disciple does. That's, that's Mary again. You know, she chose the good portion that would not be taken away from her. And somehow we think that if we, we spend a little bit of time with the Lord, if we kind of mic, uh, um, you know, multitask while we're driving, well, that's good enough for the king of the universe. Not only is it probably not good enough for him, although he loves us and he's merciful, it's really not good for us. We really need that time of sitting there. Uh, it reminds me of a story of a, a, a pastor in a small town, he's driving to the, the uh, farmer's market. And as he's, uh, well, not driving, but on his bicycle going to the farmer's market, and as he's cycling down the street, he notices a, a little boy pushing a lawnmower. Just so happened he needed a lawnmower. So you know, um, as he's seeing this little boy, he, he slows down. And he, says, he says, son, where are you going with that lawnmower? And he says, I'm, I'm going down to the market. I'm just going to sell this thing. I, I don't need it anymore. And, and he says, well, how much do you want for your lawnmower? He said, I just happen to be looking for a lawnmower. And he looks at the pastor and he says, that's a mighty fine bike you're driving there. So you'd be up for a swap? And the pastor says, you know what? I got an extra bike at home. He said, I would definitely be up for a swap. And so they, they make their little arrangement there, and pastor's all happy, and the little boy's happy. He says, little boy says, now, there's one thing I need to tell you about this lawnmower. He said, the only way you can, you can get it started is you've got to pull that string for about two minutes, and you've got to swear at it really hard. And pastor said, well, son, he said, I've been following the Lord for many, many years. And... Uh, Serving the Lord for many, many years, he said, I believe I've forgotten how to swear. And the boy says, you pull on that string for a couple minutes, it'll come back to you. <laughs> well, the problem is, it comes back to us. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing and reminding his men of as he's uh, talking with them here. He's giving them their orientation as disciples. He's wanting them to realize that they need to constantly be with Him. And so, this is not in depth, but over the next year and a half, Jesus is going to be going back into all of these things. And it's the same for us. If we read the Bible, we need to keep reading the Bible. We need to be, because that really is what spending time with the Lord is all about. Because those old things can come back pretty quick. And what Jesus is doing here is he's talking to them about their attitudes and about things that are very common and very normal to them. But if they're spending time with him, that will keep these things from happening. And so today, in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, I kind of named it Our Needs and God's Provision. Uh, this will be a big chapter in their growing here. So, if you have a Bible, look, uh, turn to Luke chapter 6. And what I'm going to really be camping on here are the transitions in thought. I don't know about you, but a lot of times it seems that, uh, even in the Sermon on the Mount, some of the things that Jesus says or, or whatever, it's like, okay, what is the connection between that and this? 
do they really even fit together? And if you want to see the real confusion on that, all you need to do is look at some of the commentators because they are pretty much all over the place. And I'm not saying I have the truth on this, but I've, I hope I've studied it enough that at least if I'm taking a wild guess, it doesn't seem quite as wild. So what Jesus has been talking about, what he mentioned in the last, uh, what I mentioned in the last sermon in uh, the, the portion leading up to this was Jesus said, Make sure that your treasure is in heaven. In other words, don't be seeking it from people. Don't be seeking it by letting other people think that you're so spiritual and and your religious routines are really what carry the day. That isn't what carries the day. It's you being before your Father who is in secret, living a life that is absolutely authentic, you know, spirit on spirit with your Father. And that kind of shows you where your treasure is. And he says, make sure it's in heaven. And then he goes into this little thing about the eye. The eye being the lamp of the body. And if your eye is sound, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is not sound, your whole body will be full of darkness. He's talking about your understanding. He's saying, make sure you you foster and you nurture the right understanding of spiritual things. Because if you don't, it will really hurt you. Now today... He starts out talking about mammon. Well, you can kind of relate that back, I guess, a little bit to talking about treasure in heaven. But I think it's really related to make sure you have a good understanding about what's happening here. And so um, he goes on and he says, verse 24, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon being sort of a, they don't even know where the word came from, whether it's from um, uh, Calidy or whatever, but it's riches, serving the God of riches. Now, let me just say something here. I think that probably most of us think we're kind of, sort of, ish past this one. And I think maybe the apostles would have thought that too. The Pharisees certainly thought they were. Because Jesus is going to use this illustration again. And when he does, the Pharisees, it says, scoff at him. They scoff at him. They, They make noises. Because I think they figured out a way to serve God and mammon. Jesus is saying you can't do it. And so what exactly is Jesus talking about? Because not too many of us here would say we worship money. But, you know, in one of C.S. Lewis's books, he says a very interesting thing. He's, he, it, it's, it's in a book called Paralandra, which you probably have never read and you don't really need to read, but it's an interesting book. But he says, I thought the love of money was the root of all evil, but really maybe what it is is that money allows us to maintain a level of comfort repeat certain joys, allow ourselves to feel safe. Maybe that's what money does. Now, here's the deal. Because if that's somewhere close to the truth, anything that allows us to be secure apart from God, anything that allows us to repeat comforts and repeat pleasures, might actually be taking God's place. And so maybe it isn't greenbacks, per se, or the money that you have in the bank. Maybe it is something else. So um, the apostles were actually 
hard hit by this whole concept about money. Remember the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and he, he looks like he's got it together and it says Jesus loved him. He says, am I lacking anything? And Jesus says, yeah, one thing. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And, come, and, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. And it says the man walked away and he was sad. And then Jesus says to the disciples how hard it will be for those who are rich to enter the kingdom of God. It will be easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. Now I know you've heard explanations of that, except Luke the doctor uses surgical needle. And you can't get a camel through one of those unless you dissolve them in sulfuric acid and squirt them through with a hypodermic needle. In other words, it's impossible. And the disciples have a fit. And we look at the disciples as not being very intelligent people. But cutting to the chase, I think what they understood Jesus saying is this. They were standing there, and the only thing they had with them was on their back. And I think Jesus basically said to them, if you have anything more than what you have right now, it could hinder you. And they're going, well, who can be saved? They weren't dumb. They understood. The disciples sitting here right now only have what is on their backs. They don't have anything more than this. And Jesus is saying, this whole issue with your needs and God's provision is a huge one. It is what will either keep a person, and it does, it keeps many people from considering spiritual things. It could actually keep a follower of God from growing. It could, keep, it could make somebody who started well start to stumble and slow down and get cautious and get safe and just not do anything. So this is a pretty big area. And notice what Jesus says immediately after this. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. Do you notice the connection? Therefore, do not be anxious. You can't serve two masters. So, Think about this. Therefore, do not be anxious. I think anxiety is one of these things. Anxiety for our needs is one of these things that actually presses us to look for help elsewhere. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you shall eat, what you shall drink, or about your body, what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? I mean, saying this to a, a, you know, a group of people in the Western world, this just seems so ridiculous. Do we even think like this? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Now, for those of you who know the uh, Discovery Channel where they actually talk about farms, there are those things that exist in other parts of this country. Um, you have to sow and then you have to reap and you have to gather and then you take it to Walmart. There might be a step in between, but I don't know what that is. But this is obviously talking about a whole different life. But here's the point, and this is sort of a, an interesting thought here. Yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. Now you've got to stop right there. Do you realize that God feeds the birds? You just thought that was random action, right? You know, I, I, when I was thinking about this, Jesus said, when he's talking to his disciples in another sense, he says, do you not know that a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without your father's will? Now that 
is pretty interesting theology. I mean, pretty, think, pretty interesting to think about God. Even a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without God, the Father, knowing about it. And the correlation here is that every time they're fed, he knows it. And he's provided for it. Is God, can God be that intricate? Can he be that intricate with us? And Jesus goes on here. Verse 27, which of you, by being anxious, can add, it says here, a single hour to his span of life. Uh, in, the, in the text it says, a cubit to his span of life. I like that better. It's 18 inches. Which of you can add 18 inches? Through anxiety, which of you can add 18 inches to his life? And I've often thought about this. You know what you, you could do, though? I th- you know, is... It's like when, if you're walking and you die, you're, I mean, the process is going on. What you do is you lunge ahead. See if you can get an extra 18 inches out of it. Wouldn't that be cool? And then I thought, you know, but God is all-knowing. So apparently he would have already known you were going to lunge ahead 18 inches. And so you don't come out any better in the long run anyway. But what it's telling you is that your life is completely in God's hands. The correlation being, it's not in yours. It's in his. If he feeds the birds, he's feeding you too. Just in a different way. And, um, why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the... God clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven for burning and heating and baking bread, will he not much more clothe you, O men of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek all these things, and your Heavenly Father knows you need them all. And I'm going to stop there, because here's the deal. I don't think that we're really anxious about those things. Who here is really anxious Do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? I don't think there's a person in this room who is anxious about these things. I would also venture, and and I'm not saying that particularly about people in this room, but I'm I'm thinking about our, our culture in the West. Generally speaking, I don't really think we think God gives them to us either. I think we just get them. We, we get them because we work. We get them because, uh, you know, natural means and all of this. And here is the problem. If we don't understand that these come from God, if we don't understand that He provides everything for us, why should we go to Him? If that isn't a mindful thought, if we can't even be anxious about the loss of those things, then here comes the corollary. Why in the world should we seek the kingdom of God? You know, I have had to learn through hard experience that the prodigal does not come home if he does not get hungry. You know the story of the prodigal son, right? You know, why does the prodigal come home? Because he gets hungry. He realizes where he is isn't working. And there is a father there who loves him, who he can go to. Why would we ever seek the Father if we're full? Oh, you need to consider that. I have seen the damage this has done in the life of somebody who is pretty close to me. Just never got hungry. 
So he never came home. It's too bad. And I think what Jesus is saying here to these guys, and this is kind of why he's keeping them at this stage with nothing on their back. When he sends them out, he doesn't even let them take any food with them. He doesn't let them take any money with them. He shows them that God can provide. And I'm saying I think it is really important. Here's my question. If God isn't the one who provides, emotionally speaking, who provides, jobs provide. Um, Other people provide. Um, Sometimes our own education provides. These are important deals, right? And I think there is a subtle tendency for us then to say, you know, I really love God. I really do. And then you you kind of ask a person, you know, where their time and where their anxieties really lie. And it would be the closure of that plant. It would be uh, that person at work getting really mad at me and not liking my job performance. That's where my anxiety is. And so I wonder if, in fact, mammon is as dead as we think. You know, what's interesting, um, when the disciples get all shaken up about Jesus saying that, that riches can keep a person... Oh, by the way, you're all rich. I don't know if you know that. You're all rich. Um, yeah, because in the Bible, basically, to be poor meant... You only had one change of clothes, and you didn't know if you had food outside of today. So I would guess if I went home and inspected any of your pantries, you're probably set up for at least the week, right? And your closets probably have more than one change of clothes in them. That's why in the Old Testament, by the way, if a, if an, a poor person gave up their cloak as sort of security for borrowing money from you, you could not keep his cloak overnight because he had nothing to sleep with. It was against the law. So, the disciples get all shaken up about this money issue, and he says, okay, um, uh, who, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, with God, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So here's, here's where I'm coming to on this. I think we're all affected by this. But I think God in his love throws out breadcrumbs. He does things to unsettle our lives. He does things to make us realize that we need him. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. And in that book, what he says is if it weren't for pain, we wouldn't really even know that we need God. And, you know, in uh, Romans chapter 3 where it says, no one does good, no one seeks after God, If it weren't for God, we wouldn't. I really think that's true. No one would seek after God except that He throws out breadcrumbs. He throws out tons of crumbs. He hits us with loaves of... Have you ever seen German like farm bread? If you get hit with a loaf of that, that will leave a mark. And I think in His grace and His goodness, He constantly allows a flow of things into our lives to unsettle us so that we realize... That we are mortal. We realize that at work, our security is not firmly at work. Sometimes our education doesn't take us far enough. We need God and thank God that He shows us that. Because disciples definitely need this. Because here's the, here's the corollary of this. 
Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Let the day's own trouble be sufficient for the day. I think that what takes away our working for the kingdom of heaven, seeking first the kingdom of God, is because we're already full. And so we kind of relegate that maybe to our a pastime or um, something that isn't really that serious. I, I, I'm, I'm, I think I've seen in my experience and I've seen the experience of other people that when you're faced with loss, sometimes, and you understand that things come from God, it's much easier to be able to focus and make the decision and say, you know what, I'm going to put everything on him. I'm going to follow him completely. I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to give up everything to follow him. So then, it seems now, Jesus is going to switch gears. I think there's a reason for this here. In your text in uh, Matthew 7, uh, it'll say, Judge not and you, that you may not be judged. And now Luke is going to bring in some other information here. And since I'm flying down the road, I'm going to, I'm going to fly in this. This is in Luke chapter 6. You don't have to turn there. But he says, judge not and you will not be judged. Now, why would judging even be an issue here? Like, what is Jesus introducing a new theme? So, this week in the one-year Bible, and I, I mentioned this on Wednesday night with the guys, um, In Proverbs 28, it says, A greedy man stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. Wow. There's a connection between our needs and our anxiety in stirring up strife. Getting on the case of other people. And so if you look at this whole thing that Jesus is saying here, you include Luke, Judge not that you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. In good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be poured into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. That's the whole thing that Luke introduces in completing that. But I think what he's saying here is your anxiety for yourself, the cares of your life, the desire for good things, what it also does is it creates problems in relationships with other people. Uh, James says this, What causes wars? What causes fightings among you? Is it not your passions that are at war in your members? You desire and you do not have, so you kill. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. And I think what Jesus is doing is he's putting together this thing for them. If you are driven by your needs, if you're driven by anxieties, if you're serving another master, you know what that's going to do? It's going to make it impossible for you to live at peace with people. Because there's always that sense of competition. There's always the sense of somebody standing between you and what you want. So imagine it's Black Friday. All right? And you need to get to the store to get that item because they have just a limited quantity. And this is a great deal. And you pull out on the highway, and there is a person who cannot drive his car. 
Now you're judging. You know what? His license ought to be taken away from him. He's such a poor driver. Now you're condemning. But maybe what you need to do is forgive. God, there is somebody in front of me who does not deserve to be on the roads in Texas. Oh, Lord, forgive this person. In fact, maybe what you should do is give. You take your foot off the accelerator. You let a gap open up. You let that person come in there. He may get to Walmart before you and buy that thing, but who cares? See, it's the idea. A secure person, a person whose needs are being met by God, is able to love when other people can't love, is able to give when other people can't give. It's your last 20 bucks. Give it. And therefore, you don't have to judge people. You can be open toward them. You can look beyond that. You don't have to condemn them because you realize you would be in exactly the same place. So I think that what Jesus is saying here for the disciples is not only good information, but it's still connected to the idea of your needs and God's provision. You know what's so interesting? When Jesus talks in the Olivet Discourse, he's talking about the end times. He says, And because of the increase of evil and wickedness in the world, the love of most men will grow See, the reason in the West everybody is so friendly is because we have so much. And it's good times. What would happen if things really got negative? What would happen if, if people were really coming into your backyard and stealing things and they were invading your house and, and um, people at work and whatever? I mean, people were just shutting down. Could you be the one person that could still be giving? Could you be the one person who could still step back and say, hey, take it? Didn't Jesus just talk about something like that? If they want to take your robe or your coat, give them your cloak too. Can you be that person? See, a disciple is that person because he's living for his Savior in the kingdom of God. And so I think this stuff flows perfectly together. And then Jesus gets to talking about discipleship. Now, for this, you actually do need Luke chapter 6. Um, 639. And you'll see how they, they connect. I, I got all this out of Pentecost book. It isn't because I'm smart. It's just because, you know, I never had that class in seminary. Um, he also said to them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Now, the transition here is pretty important. So, if you're going to be a disciple, if you're going to be a maker of disciples, here's the deal. You've got to get this under control. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? And we go, duh. Of course they will. Well, if it's not a pit, I mean, this is Sugarland. It's an even sidewalks because of the trees. They're going to fall somewhere. Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. So here is an offer and a warning. You need to become more like Jesus. That means you need to spend more time with Jesus. A disciple is not greater than his teacher, but anyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. That is a great thing. I need to become more like Jesus. And don't look so smug, so do you. We all do. But here's the danger. If you don't and you make disciples, they will look just like you. 
And that's the warning that he's saying here. If you guys cannot get over this, this is what you are going to produce as disciple makers. You're going to produce disciples that have exactly the same genetic flaws. Who are anxious about stuff. Who are judging about things. You know, I've been in some places, seriously, where you could not get in with the guys in the church unless you bashed Obama. Seriously, it was awful. I mean, I, could, I couldn't even find fellowship with these guys. Really? Is that what we're all about here? And they were duplicating that in the church. Well, the thing is, what Jesus is saying here, this is pretty important. And then he goes on, and you can see it. And this, this I think, takes us back to um, Matthew. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? This is for disciples. And Jesus is asking it as a question, how, how is this possible? Don't you see you've got a log sticking out of your eye? But you're really concerned about your brother and the speck in his eye. Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you've got a log sticking out of your own eye? He says, you hypocrite, you actor, stop it. First take the log out of your own eye. And here's the, the idea of this, I think, and this is why he's, he's saying this to them, is he called them to be disciples. So they needed to have the personal awareness. They had to have the kind of self-discipline so they could explore their own lives. And they couldn't get out of the idea of making other disciples. Disciples make disciples. Churches don't make disciples. Disciples make disciples. Discipleship is always a personal, person-on-person kind of thing. It isn't just relegated to Christian education. That may be a big part of it. But it's people-on-people getting together and forming one another. And so he's saying, look, you've got to be really careful about what you're doing here. What kind of person are you becoming? Are you becoming like me? If you are, then good. You know, you're not going to be perfect, but take that and put it into that person's life and put it into that person's life. Spend time with them and form them up in the Word of God. Teach them to spend time with me and everything will go great. But if you're just living for church, you're just living for yourself. Christianity is just, you know, oh, okay, I've got to do that then that's what you're going to produce. And I think this is really a warning to them. And I think they were up to it. And you hear people say, well, I'm not worthy. The reason I don't make disciples is I'm not worthy to be a disciple. I'm not worthy to have my life flow into another person's life. And I remember Tony Campola talking about it. He says, you know, that's brilliant. Because they get out of doing the work, and they look spiritual. He said, I'd never let them do that. I'd say, look, Do you think we would have asked you if we had anybody else? He said, I was a terrible pastor. You can't keep members like that. And then there's the other one. I can't do it. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Because disciple making is just something where we're we're nurturing people to be in the Word of God and to follow Him. That's really a simple process, but it takes time. And that's the other thing. I don't have the time. And then that kind of enters back in this whole thing about mammon. Do we have the time and what are we living for? So, our needs and following. 
So, all of a sudden, Jesus looks like he's changing the subject again, right? Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. And let me just say again, what is the purpose of your life on this planet, and who really are the people, or, or what really provides for your care? Do other people? Does your job? Does your education? See, because if that's the case, then sometimes you have to stay in a situation longer than you really ought to stay in a situation. I know it seems a little bit cryptic, but I think what Jesus is saying here is if you find yourself in a situation where what you are sharing with people, what you are bringing to people, actually does them absolutely no good, why are you there? Is it for yourself? Don't throw your, per, you know, giving dogs what is holy would be, you know, the holy bread in the tabernacle. You don't feed that to dogs. They're not going to benefit from that. Uh, throwing your, pearl before, your pearls before swine, that thing we understand a little bit better. Uh, the things that the Lord has given you, maybe wisdom, maybe insight into something, maybe your love and compassion. And, and how do you know you're dealing with swine? It's really easy. They trample it underfoot. You know, anybody can say that. You know, you, they just argue with you continually. They trample it underfoot, and then they turn to attack you. And I think what Jesus is saying here, and it's a command, get out of there. Get out of there. What is your life? What is your purpose? I know if your life is your job, you're not going to want to give that up, but do you feel like you're spinning? You know, I'm not asking anybody to quit the job. I'm just, I'm just thinking out loud here. Is your life basically your place of ministry or is it just the place where you make money and you're secure? The people that you deal with, whether it's at work or whatever, is it because that is your personal well-being or do you actually have a ministry there? How do you know you have a ministry there? They listen to you. They, they, there's some kind of spiritual traction that takes place there. But the question is, if God said this is not the right place, could you just leave? Because that's pretty much what he's saying here. So I found myself in a situation when we were in New York City that um, I got into, we got into a conflict over a personnel issue, and there, was, uh, there were some other things going on, and one guy basically rose up as mighty. And uh, he made himself the person who had to be dealt with on everything. And so I got together with him, and I continued to get together with him. You know, because you got to, you know, there's conflict, you got to talk it out. And the more we talked, the more I realized this is, this is going in the, the other direction. You know, I mean, I was willing to stand back and, and you know, admit, you know, whatever I could admit and everything. But there was one time we got into this conversation and the Lord just said, Dan, you're dealing with swine here. Because all he's doing is taking everything you say and turning to attack you. Stamping, stamping it down. There's no credence in anything you say. And this was after several weeks. And then the Lord said, what if I told you now to leave? I'm going, Lord, Lord, wait a minute. We've only been here seven months, Lord. We've only been, and we love New York City. I know you can't realize, you can't understand that. Maybe Ashish can, but we love New York City. 
It was great. I mean, the potential of working there. And we were working with, with Indian people and Colombians and, and, and Nepali people and Brazilians. It was great. It was a wonderful place to work. And then the Lord just said, yeah, so what is the real issue here? I said, you know, I'm not going to have a job. And Lord, my, my resume already looks like a train wreck. Right, so how am I going to get another job? Well, Dan, can I get you another job? Sure you can, but it's going to have to be a miracle. I can do miracles. And so Laura and I prayed about this, and the Lord, the Lord just made it plain at every point. We had to go. You know, I've known pastors that have stayed in places 10, 15, 20 years after the point that they knew they should have left. And they ruined themselves. They ruined the church. It didn't help anybody, actually. Why? Well, my kid's in school here. And besides that, I'm making a good wage. And really? Is that why we stay in places when the Lord shows us we're not being effective? And long story short, uh, a day before the moving van came, we still didn't know where we were going. We wound up in Dallas, Texas, because a friend of mine called up. And he says, hey, we have a house that we're going to bulldoze. If you don't mind, you can live in it for five months. We said, sure. I called the moving company. Okay, now we're going to Dallas, Texas. University Park, by the way, if anybody knows University Park in Dallas. I was never meant to live in University Park. But we had the benefit of living there for five months. Um, as a result of that... I was able to get back into my doctorate, which had, I had actually gotten a warning letter from DTS telling me. I actually wrote a book as a result of that and finished my doctorate. So did the Lord know what he was doing by taking a chance like that? Yeah. And the thing is, he tests us like that sometimes. He, he puts a situation before us and he wants to see if we're going to obey. Who really leads and controls our lives. The needs of our real provider, and this is the end of it. He says here, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who um, seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if a son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? By the way, they have done scientific studies. If your son asks for bread and you give him a stone, it'll be bad for his teeth. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. Yuck. Not even in Texas. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So, um, I'm running out of time, and so I'm just going to fly here. Um, why do you seek? Why do you ask? Why do you knock? These are all commands. These are not optional, by the way. So this week, hopefully, there was some asking. This week, hopefully, there was some seeking. This week, hopefully, there was a lot of knocking going on. But the problem is that's only related to the harvest. That is only related to the harvest. Now, now, obviously, if we ask him, you know, because our car is broken down and all that, so, you know, God hears that. But, but when you look at, 
at John chapter 15. If you abide in Me and My Word abides in you, ask whatever you will and it shall be done for you. For in this is My Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be My disciples. We're going to get the harvest rolling here. Ask! And why don't we ask? Because it's like, what? Is that really important? It's not that important. And so we don't ask. And we don't seek. And we don't knock. We're pretty much in maintenance mode. If something breaks, then we ask for that thing. If our health. I love to hear people still asking, seeking, knocking for lost people. That means there's life on the vine. Going back to John 15. So, we were, ta- we were talking on our, in the Wednesday night uh, discipleship group. What about work? What about work? You know, I would really serve God if I didn't have to go to work. Douglas Hyde, in a book he wrote, he was a communist who became a Christian. He said, Christians have this whole thing wrong. He said, for a communist, the most important time of his day is going to work. That's where he has his influence. Why does he become the best worker on the floor? Why does he become the union steward? So he can have influence. Because when they look at him and they see that he's a good individual and that he's concerned about the other workers there and everything, they listen to all the baloney he spews out. But we don't have baloney. we got good stuff. Work is where we do our work for Jesus Christ. It is not separate. Whoever taught us that? And so you need to think of that. Your education. What are you being educated for? So you can make money? So that you can give your your family a good income? Really? I know people that are living adventurous, dynamic lives that are never going to make a fraction of what you make. Your education is a tool for Jesus Christ. Look at Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were at the top of their class and God used them mightily. And you look at Daniel in chapter 7. You look at you like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3. They were willing to give it all up to serve God. And did God use them? He saved the people right there. He saved the Israelites in chapter 3. And if you don't believe me, go read that again. Wow. Your education, your job, these are tools for God, but you have to have a heart that understands that you live under Him. And He is the boss. And you're only on this planet to serve Him. It's your mission. It's your purpose. And that's what Jesus is trying to ingrain into these guys right now. So, the whole part here, He gets down to uh, verse 12. And He says, Do unto, uh, basically, do unto others as you would have them to do. What you wish men would do to you, do to them, for this is the law and the prophets. It says the same thing in Romans chapter 13. The fulfilling of the law is loving your neighbor. And what does it say in Titus? We should be people who are given to good works, doing good things for our neighbor. Why? To stimulate them to come closer to Jesus Christ. So here's the deal. It starts with knowing our provider, and that's God. He's the one who gives us everything, and that's what Jesus is trying to make plain to the the boys. And we need to live at his feet and be here for his service, and our job is not our provider. 
Our education is not our provider. We do not live for those things. We live for Him. And we come together and we encourage one another toward love and good works all the more as we see the day drawing near. And so I just want to ask you, I know what he was saying to them, but what is he saying to you? Um, You don't have to sell anything. You don't have to quit your job. You don't have to short, you know, uh, you know, stop your education, but it's who's going to be the, the boss in your life? You know, sometimes we don't have a choice in this. Sometimes an emergency makes us be better people than we actually are. You know, our problem is we have the choice right now. But, um, you know, sometimes you don't know the uh, you know, how God is going to lead you or the things that happen. And it kind of marshals you into an area where you kind of have to live on the edge. And that's a good thing. We get to make the choice. But I just wanted to finish up with this. I was in a doctor's office one time. I had to take my, I took care of my mom for eight years and I took her to all of her appointments. And I was in a um, uh, doctor's, uh, uh, heart doctor's office. That's what it was. And it was a big waiting room. You know, and it sort of went around this corner here, and I walked my mom through it, and we finally found a seat over here. And uh, I I barely noticed the people who were in this other section, but a guy came in wearing a ball cap, but it was like an army ball cap, right? Old gentleman, he came in, walked past us, went around the corner, and, and as he was going around the corner, this other man said to him, he said, he said, you were in North Africa the emblem, insignia on his hat. And the guy said, no, no. He said, I joined my, my squadron when, when we got to Italy, but we had already taken Italy, and so we set up base there, and we were flying missions into Germany from Italy. And these two guys in this waiting room, the wait, there was just like a hush in the waiting room, and they were talking about their war experience. And, and one guy had been in the Pacific, so a completely different theater, But as they talked together, it was just amazing. Two people in different places experiencing, in essence, the same battle. And having lost comrades. And and there were times where it got silence. And you could tell the respect. That was building between these guys. And, you know, I've often thought, you know, I've been in churches and, you know. So what are we going to talk about when we hit the shores of heaven? Ah, those were some great fellowship dinners we had there. We all survived Martha's stew. (laughs) Really? Wouldn't it be great to think that we were an army? I mean... We're, we're serving our Lord Jesus Christ and we're sacrificing. We're a sacrificial group of people willing to give of ourselves, willing to lay everything down, not just intellectually, but we're willing to lay everything down for our Savior because He gave everything for us and He is our provider. And if He said to this, this group of people here, you go and you go do that, we would understand what that sacrifice meant because we're willing to make exactly the same sacrifice every day in our lives for Jesus Christ. And that is one of those things that shows us that we belong to Him. 
Are we willing to give everything back for the sake of him? Let's pray.